There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hi, Chris. Good to talk again after a break of a week. I hope you're well. Lots to talk about, of course, when we're away for a week. But there's a few things that I think are worthy of our initial discussion this week. One is we've seen a lot of action on the inflation front in the United States, in the euro area, and indeed here in Ireland. So I think there is an ongoing discussion to be had about what exactly is happening on the inflation front and what exactly our central bankers achieving at this stage. There have been some Irish data releases. Um, I find the trade numbers that we've just got for May particularly interesting because they continue a trend of weakness in the chemical and pharma side that uh, we've been discussing over a number of months since the beginning of the year. We had the final data for Irish growth in 2022. Uh, just, just re- I think it's worth reiterating what's happening there, particularly the whole debate about the difference between GDP and GNI star and so on. A little bit of interpretation there. Finally, we saw the the Office of Management Budgetary Control last week uh, publishing a piece on the sustainability of the UK fiscal situation. Um, I didn't read it in great detail, but I picked up the headlines suggesting that over the coming decades, the debt GDP ratio in the United Kingdom could hit 300%. What a frightening prognostication. And I think it's one that policymakers really, really need to think about very seriously at this juncture to prevent that sort of event from happening and that sort of development. Uh, But Chris, I think you wanted to briefly refer to a piece that I put up on our Substack account today. 
um, about public spending and the RT fiasco and so on. Uh, far be it for me to blow my own trumpet, so I let you talk about it. Thanks, Jim. Yes, welcome back. It's been a, a great to have a break, and I think it is the pause that has refreshed because we've got enough material for several podcasts, so uh, listeners can look forward to uh, probably more than our usual one or two this week. Welcome back. Your article, I think, was excellent. Far be it for me to blow your trumpet, Jim. Gosh, that conjures up all sorts of horrible images. It, it does, Chris. Don't go there. Anyway, anyway, you talked about the uh, way in which taxpayers' money is spent, in, in, in particular in organisations like RTE, which, of course, struck a chord with me, because here in the UK, we've been having quite different but uh, problems in our public broadcaster with the revelations about Hugh Edwards, a poor man who's suffering from mental health issues. The scandal has erupted across all of the news wires, sucking all of the oxygen out of the media debate. Uh, Lots of of issues that should be discussed haven't been discussed. Lots of questions raised about the role of the tabloid press and lots of questions raised about the long-term future of the BBC. Thankfully, that debate has subsided. But I don't think the debate over in Ireland has quite gone away as quickly as it has here in the UK uh, about the future of RTE and uh, its star presenter. I think you raised an interesting question, sidestepping all of the shenanigans about personalities and who said what to whom and the cover-ups and the revisions and the redacted passages and all that stuff and simply asked about accountability in the public sector and accountability when it comes to spending other people's money. I would say that there is actually a read across as well in the private sector, because I've seen many examples in my career, the alacrity with which people in the private sector spend shareholders money is sometimes a sight to behold. And waste and inefficiency can exist, of course, in in both sectors. But your article was about spending taxpayers money, Jim, and the accountability. And in particular, I think you referenced, we should be focusing on output rather than inputs. And Just what do do we actually get for our money? You mentioned inevitably the children's hospital, which seems to be ongoing. I follow it at a distance. But maybe you just summarise your thoughts, which have got a very strong reaction on our Substack Substack account. Yeah, Chris, I I found, I have found the whole RT debacle particularly interesting because the narrative amongst many people of a certain political persuasion is that the private sector is basically corrupt, inefficient, incapable of delivering good outputs for anybody. The behaviour of the banks in the run-up to the banking collapse in 2007-2008 is justifiably put up there on the totem pole as uh, the ultimate fiasco in terms of corporate governance, corporate behaviour and so on. Um, And I wouldn't disagree with any of that. I mean, the way the banks were managed and the way they used shareholders' funds and so on in the run-up 2007-2008 was absolutely diabolical. And particularly in hindsight, the more we learn about it. But the point I'm really trying to make is that it is not unique to the private sector. I mean, we've seen some startling examples of public sector failure. You know, we, we had the false debacle some years ago. This was a state training agency where uh, there was a massive waste of taxpayers' money. Um, we have the ongoing fiasco, I would describe it, with the HSE. Um, we've seen 
massive increase in spending on the health service over the last 20 years. Okay, there were cutbacks during the period of austerity, which uh, were ill-advised at the time and certainly exacerbated the situation. But if you go back over 20 years, you know, there has been a significant increase in spending on health. And the question I think that needs to be asked there is, did we get the commensurate improvement in uh, services from the health sector? And, you know, one metric for judging that would be waiting lists and particularly waiting lists if you are dependent on the public health service. And for other reasons, I was looking into waiting lists for dermatological services in the pub in the public sector uh, recently. And, you know, the numbers are absolutely frightening. Uh, the manner in which these waiting lists have continued to grow. So th there is no commensurate improvement in the outputs from the health sector based on the inputs that are put in there. Uh, we've seen the ongoing uh, debacle at RTE, basically a total waste of taxpayers' money, very poor corporate governance. All sorts of issues have been raised by that particular debacle. And I, and I guess the unfortunate thing is, that debacle is not over yet. Um, I suspect we're going to lot, we're going to get lots of other revelations um, over the coming months. And I suppose what makes the public sector stuff interesting is that we are talking about the use of taxpayers' money. Um, and I know uh, back in two thousand eight, two thousand and nine, what was a private sector problem uh, basically fell on the shoulders of the taxpayer again. But you know, having said that, we're seeing lots of examples of total failure of the public sector to spend taxpayers' money efficiently. And uh, you mentioned there the Children's Hospital. Um, I think that the decision to build it where it's being built was absolutely ridiculous, you know, given the part of Dublin it's in, given the traffic congestion. Um, and I think it's going to be a nightmare for people accessing that. But that that's one issue where it was located in the first place. But the second issue is the manner in which the cost of the delivery of that hospital is just escalating. Um, it's now going to be north of two billion. Um, and somebody in the development business said to me last week that he wouldn't be at all surprised if it hit three billion because uh, the explanation he gave was that basically the contract that the HSE issued was totally flawed and that there was no nothing built in there to control the cost of delivering that hospital. So just a litany of public sector failure. And I think this is important, you know, in the context of that 65 billion in budget surplus that is projected out to 2026, 2027. What we do with that, um, there are some out there who believe the only thing to do with it is just spend it all on the delivery of public services. I, I wouldn't really argue with that if I believed putting more money into public services would actually improve the quality of public services, and particularly um, improve the ability to deliver housing. But I wouldn't be at all convinced because in, in relation to housing, for example, there is another example of a total failure, which is Borplanola. You know, it is not fit for purpose. Um, it is pretty dysfunctional in terms of speeding up the delivery of housing. So I think we need to be very, very careful about this narrative that all of this money should be just thrown into the public sector and spent on public services because there is no guarantee it will result in better outcomes. And in fact, 
you often find that the more money you pump into something that's problematic than the first place, place, you just exacerbate the problems and they become totally and utterly entrenched. So I think we need to be very, very careful. Yeah, the, the points you make about outcomes or outputs, both really, I think is very, very important because it's a shame, in my view, that these things become such political footballs or indeed begin life as political footballs stemming from the, depending on which part of the political spectrum you're on, uh, if you're a left-wing type person, all private sector spending is bad. And if you're a right-wing person, all public spending is bad. If you could park that debate for a second and focus what I think you're getting at here, which is on the pragmatic, how do you do these big projects, whether in the public sector or the private sector? And we've got plenty of examples of both but in some cases, particularly when you look internationally, but also at home, where they're done well, they're done on time to budget, and you've got plenty of examples, probably lots more, when they always seem to involve cost overruns, particularly when they are the big public sector infrastructure projects. I could cite uh, what began as Crossrail and is now is the Elizabeth Line, a magnificent piece of public sector infrastructure. I've used it recently. You have too, I know. And it's it's a wonderful piece of, uh, a wonderful addition to London's uh, transport infrastructure. But the cost overruns and the delays were typical of too many public sector projects. Now, I've no idea whether the Children's Hospital is an example of this at all, because I'm not, not close to the detail there. But I do know, particularly here in the UK, one of the key problems uh, and there are many, this is just one, is that we always go with the cheapest option when these things are put out for tender. Price is the determinant of everything. And I'm always reminded when I look at these things, of Oscar Wilde's dictum, aphorism, if you like, that knowing the price of everything means that you know the value of nothing. And it's not always the case that going with the cheapest option is necessarily the best because you can get all sorts of mispricing and the wrong sort of uh, contractors, subcontractors doing the project then who, who haven't bid properly. The specification of these kinds of projects up front, I think, uh, requires an expertise that sometimes is severely lacking in the public sector. And all of this comes under the headline, the rubric, if you like, of governance. And that's the one thing that we just don't seem to be able to do well anymore if we are able to do it at all. The governance of these things means that you get people telling stories about the NHS here. I've heard this said both about the NHS and the Irish HSE, that you could double the amount of spending on these entities and you would get far less than a doubling of the outputs from these agencies. I've, I've heard it said that you could double the amount of money spent on healthcare in the UK and make bugger all difference to the outcomes because they are ungoverned systems or badly governed systems that just simply are set up now to absorb cash rather than to uh, generate outputs. So it's all about absorbing inputs and generating no outputs. I'm sure that's an exaggeration. It isn't literally true, but it gives you a flavor for how some people do think about these things. So uh, we, we need to think, I think, far more seriously about the governance around these, these projects from the initial tendering process, project design, and project management, which we just don't seem to be able to do properly. I'm not saying any of these things are easy, but we've got to aspire and develop processes and systems that mean that we, we are able to do them better. 
And in the case of public sector broadcasting, I think it raises fundamental questions about why the taxpayer should fund public sector broadcasting at all. I know the theory. I know that if, if we uh, don't fund broadcasting using taxpayers' money, you end up with a US-style television system uh, in, in particular and broadcasting system in general. And I know people in the newspaper industry argue that there should be more taxpayer funding of newspapers because the quality of newspapers has deteriorated so much. We now have um, US-style or even in, in our UK-style news, newspaper industries dominated by um, media moguls like, like Rupert Murdoch. But if the tax in, in this era, and particularly here in the UK, Jim, which I'll talk about in a minute, where the taxpayer really, really is 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 being stretched more than he has been for seven, or she has been for seventy years. Th- there is no money, and so it, it's it's an open question to me about whether or not taxpayers' money is best spent now. Certainly, best spent in the way that it's spent. I can see a theoretical case for for public sector funding, but you seem to have the worst of all worlds in 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 Ireland, Jim, because at least in the B, with the BBC such as it is with all of its flaws. I am very fond of the institution. I think it's a very important institution and I would choose to fund it. But I do think governance needs to be improved. It's another one of those public sector projects where governance just is lacking in certain regards. I don't think it's, it's disastrous, but I do think that it, it is problematic. Um, but governance for me is becoming something that ac- across so many different aspects of our economic and political life that needs improvement. The BBC is, is another example. But you, at least with the BBC, we don't have to suffer advertising. Uh, that's what we get for our licence fee. Um, in Ireland, of course, you, you, you get uh, the licence fee and you get advertising. So I, I think that uh, that raises some, some interesting questions as well. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, and Chris, there was an issue here with the RTE and GA Go. Basically, GA Go and, well, it was the GA and RTE formed an agreement that some of the uh, GA games would not be shown on terrestrial TV, that they're available through GA Go, okay, and you pay a subscription for that. Um, and the competition authority here is investigating that at the moment because here we have taxpayers who are paying a TV license to view RTE content 
And at the same time, they're being asked to pay for GA games that RT would previously have run. And there's cross shareholding there. You know, a couple of RT executives are on the board of GA. So the, the obvious temptation there would be to put the really good games on GA Go, knowing that people will pay money to watch them and put the crap games, of which there are many, particularly in football, on the on our on terrestrial television. People have no choice. So it's basically driving people towards a paid subscription on top of their te- TV license. Personally, on principle, I would not pay GA Go a subscription to, to watch games. And, you know, I'll end up watching other different types of sport at the weekend um, if, if, if that's the choice I have. As you say, we, we also get advertising with RT as part of a license fee, which you do not get with BBC. Uh, so that has to be a major plus as well. But uh, to be honest, everything we've seen over the last two or three weeks being revealed out of RT is just a total fiasco. I mean, you, you couldn't make some of the stuff up. How an organization could be run by a management team like that. And, and basically the executive management were not telling the full story to the board of RT, the, the non-executive board of RT. Uh, it, it's, it's a mad situation. And I think um, I did the initiative director's exams, as you know, last year. But I, I suspect that the the further iterations of that course that will be delivered um, later this year into next year, because it's an ongoing process, will be using RTE as a strong case study for how not to run an organization, how not to run corporate governance. It's mad stuff, but it's it's pretty disillusioning because at the, at the end of the day, you know, while all of this stuff was going on, or going on at RTE in terms of dysfunctional management and a total waste of taxpayers' money in many regards, um, RTE was making submissions to government looking for more funding. Why in the name of God would you throw more funding into an organization that is as dysfunctional as that. And I think in many ways, Ryan Tuberty may have done the nation a major service with that revelation a few weeks ago because the new director general coming in, Kevin Backhurst, he really can't lose at this stage. You know, he's starting at the bottom and the only way can possibly be up from here. So perhaps uh, thanks to the revelations and this fiasco, um, what we ultimately end up with will be um, a much better public service broadcaster that will be properly funded. We can only hope. But but governance, as you know, uh, from your own working life, Jim, and from those studies that you did for the um, Institute of Directors exams, is a complicated beast. There's lots of things that you need to get right. And it's very easy for people like us to say it needs to be made better. But there are some basics that you need to adhere to. And I wonder if these organizations that we're talking about did adhere to the basics. But the first is that the at the highest level, um, the people who sit there on the non-executive, in the non-executive seats, have to be truly independent. And they have to be troublemakers in many ways. Not troublemakers for the sake of it, but they are they have to be able to ask and demand answers to very tough questions. And I'm reminded, you, you would know this example I'm about to cite. It goes back a long way, so I think I can talk about it. I remember a guy who you knew well back in the day. This was in the late 80s, early 90s. He'd been appointed to the board of one of the Irish banks. 
And I remember chatting to him over a beer because I was doing some work with him at the time about his experience coming in from the from the private sector and uh, joining the board of an Irish bank, which I don't think had happened many too, many times before, as an executive, not a non-exec. And he said that one of the other senior people in this particular bank had commented that it was the first time that he'd seen the board and the executive team of this institution so united uh, after his arrival. It was a wonderful sight. And I said, well, what were they united over? Oh, and he said it was their determination to get me out. Yeah. And you, you know who I'm talking about. And so, so organizational culture is incredibly important. The ability to act as an independent is incredibly, incredibly difficult, but in, incredibly important. And it's quite clear that the, the culture of these organizations now need to change. And again, from my own personal experience, I know that's one of the hardest things to achieve. Because I remember being involved in running a uh, failing organization at the time that I was parachuted in to try and help. And I would give little talks to assembled groups of people. They call them town halls these days. And give the uh, speech that anybody like me would give in these situations about the need for change. Because if we don't change, we're going to die as an organization. And the audience in the town hall would all be nodding saying, yep, absolutely. Then I'd have one-to-one meetings with them about the need for change, to which they had all collectively agreed, and explain to these individuals about how they were going to have to change. And they all said, no, 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 no. Um, I accept the need for organizational change, but it doesn't apply to me. And I would say, why are you not going to change? And they said, well, we've always done it this way, my way, and I don't see any reason why that has to change. Change is one of the most difficult things that anybody can ever actually do, particularly in a business context, because it's one of the great lies that we tell ourselves is that we all embrace change. And in fact, we don't. We hate it. We loathe it. We, we detest it. So I came to the conclusion a long time ago, actually, in my career, that the only way you ever change the, the culture of an organization, which is part of this governance thing that you need to get right, is that you need to clear out the people. You need to clear out the people who won't change. And again, that's very difficult. It's brutal. It's ugly. It's thoroughly unpleasant, but that's what's got to happen, in my view, to organizations like RTE. If you are to stand any chance of getting a good governance structure in place, all of the bad beha- badly behaved children need to be cleared out, or certainly as, as many as possible. That's my own personal view. I'm not intimate with any of the details of RTE, but those would be my governance principles in the unlikely event that anybody would ask for my opinion on this. It starts with changing the people. And then you have to have rules, processes and procedures in place that keep people on the straight and narrow because the temptation to diverge, the temptation to group think, the temptation to think that what you're doing absolutely is right, but in fact is absolutely wrong. Um, that happens all the time in organizations and you just need people um, to have the tram lines, to have the guidance, to have the rules, to have the policies in place and you need the people with oversight uh, to be able to hold them to account and to uh, and to ask the difficult questions about when things are going awry. That's all very easy to say and tough to implement in practice, but at least you've got to try. And it seems to me in some of these organizations that we've been looking at that they, they don't apply. What, what, one of the unwritten rules in any organization is that culture devours strategy for breakfast. And unless you fundamentally change the culture, get rid of all the bad children as part of that process, uh, you're never going to make progress. 
Chris, I want to, you know, moving on to culture and the culture of central banking. When we did economics back in the dim and distant past, when you learned about central banking, one of the rules of engagement was that inflation is always and everywhere the enemy of central bankers, obviously to varying degrees. You know, the Bundesbank in West Germany at the time, now the central bank for the whole of Germany, but the Bundesbank back in the day, you know, was notorious as being just so anti and paranoid about inflation. The Federal Reserve had a much more relaxed attitude towards inflation because the, the mandate it was given was to promote economic growth and employment as well as controlling inflation. But anyway, we've seen in the last 18 months, central bankers really grit their teeth in the battle against inflation. They continue to say that the battle is ongoing uh, but is the battle not over, Chris? We saw U.S. inflation last week fall to 3%, the lowest level since March 2021, and, and just a small distance away from the sort of 2 2.5% inflation level that the Federal Reserve would like to see. Um, inflation in the euro area has fallen to 5.5%, okay, still way above the 2%, uh, but it is the lowest since January 2022. So headline inflation, at least still moving in the right direction. So are central bankers winning this battle? Are we going to be looking back or are we going to be having a discussion this time next year about disinflationary trends in the global economy? Well, I don't recognize anything about what you've just said, Jim, because I'm sitting here in the UK where inflation uh, isn't going down and the central banks have clearly lost in that battle against inflation. But of course, you're right. In the US, inflation has fallen dramatically. On the same basis, to enable us to do the international comparison, something called the harmonized index of consumer prices, US inflation is currently 2.7%, slightly above the, the central bank's target. Actual headline inflation is a smidge above that. So uh, on various measures, and there are so many measures of inflation that we could talk about, but we won't bore our listeners with it, the US on the basis of last month's data, and it is only one month's data, it can do, do all sorts of things going forward. But on the basis of one month's data, the US has won the battle against inflation, which raises all sorts of interesting questions. Uh, one being, why is the UK's rate of inflation, which is 8.7% compared to that 2.7% in the UK, so in the US, so high? Um, and we could devote a whole podcast to that. The other really interesting question for me is, do we understand inflation at all? Do we really, really know what A, causes inflation and B, therefore, what we need to do to cure it? Because it strikes me that the arguments now being made by those who had gone very quiet for a while, and I'm talking here about team transitory, you remember that term from a year and a half or so ago, who thought that the inflationary impulse from, first of all, the COVID economic expansion expansionary policies, both fiscal and monetary, and then the energy thing that flowed from the Ukraine war, would eventually wash out of the system. And now they're saying it's exactly what's happening. Inflation rose for one-off reasons, and now those inflation impulses have gone away. And you can see in all sorts of data that uh, all of those supply chain worries and all the other things, including energy prices, natural gas prices in particular, they've all gone away. And lo and behold, inflation is coming down all on its own. 
So the question arises, why did we put interest rates up if inflation was going to come down all of its own accord? Paul Krugerman, the Nobel Prize winning economist who writes for the New York Times, has raised that very question. He interestingly says that he agrees with the Federal Reserve's policy of putting up interest rates, but nevertheless thinks that inflation would have come down anyway, even if they hadn't put up interest rates, which strikes me as being a bit paradoxical and a bit confused. What I think he's getting at is that it clearly is a time for let's say, normalization of interest rates, move them away from their crisis levels because we're not in crisis anymore. And I think that's probably right, uh, but somewhat unscientific. Uh, but we, I go back to my first question. Why is inflation in the UK proving so stubborn? It was subject to the same shocks that the US had, and yet inflation is now nearly you know, two and a half times what it is in, in the States. And the answer lies, I think, in the structure of the UK economy, the problems that it's got that I've gone on about for so long, and in particular, the peculiarities of the labour market. You referenced the OBR's recent report in your intro, and there's so much in there we could devote um, hours of discussion to that, that are really quite quite important. But the main one... Guys, I got tongue-tied on the title that's all right, Jim. Far yeah. be it from me to correct you. It's the <laughs> Office for Budget Responsibility. Yeah. You, were, you were getting it uh, mixed up with, with the, the US, US yeah. Office for Manpower and Budget. I know. It's it's very easy to do. I get confused with IFAC, OBR, OMB and OBR, and they all amount to the same kind of thing. Anyway, they're saying that one of the problems that the UK has is to do with the labour market. And the really scary thing that's going on here that isn't receiving nearly enough attention is the number of people who are ill. And nobody quite knows why that is the case. But there has been a veritable explosion of people claiming benefits because they are sick. Nobody is suggesting that they are swinging the lead, to use an old-fashioned expression, and that they are genuinely ill. And, in, in, and the really sad thing is that an awful lot of the people claiming sickness benefits of one kind or another are claiming them for mental health reasons. So something really strange is happening to the UK at a time when their immigration, ironically given Brexit, is going through the roof because there is a huge shortage of workers, there are millions, and I mean millions of people, claiming benefits because they're too ill to work. It's shrouded in a fog of statistics, as these things often are, and you really have to put a cold towel over your head and delve through all sorts of different databases, which I've been doing, um, without reaching a conclusion. I will, though. Um, but it could well be, Jim, just to give you a headline, Vox Poppy type number, that the number of people who are claiming benefits, who are out of work for one reason or another, mostly to do with being sick, could be the same size as the population of Ireland here in the UK. It's enormous. And that's the, the working the number of people in work in the UK is a nice round number. I can remember it. You're the numbers guy, but I can the number, there are 30 million people in work in the UK. But maybe... And as I say, it is shrouded in fog. There could be as many as 5 million people. Some people do claim it is that number. Um, so, it, And that means that, that the shortage of workers is acute at a time when the, an enormous number of people in this country aren't working for one reason or another, but particularly ill health. So uh, the UK has all sorts of problems, Jim. And each time you peel a layer of the onion back, you reveal a deeper set of issues. And I think that, and I'll conclude here, and I'll be talking more about this in later pods, 
It kind of sort of explains why Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, prime minister in waiting, many people think, the opinion polls certainly points to that. The reason why he's not being radical about anything, not making any promises about spending, not making any promises about fiscal policy in general, is because he is being presented with this kind of analysis. It's not just about sick people. There's all sorts of things going on with the with the fiscal situation in the UK to do with debt interest, to do with demographics looking absolutely horrible. The defence budget has to go up, um, according to promises anyway. Lots of other reasons why the pressure on spending with no policy action whatsoever are just enormous, leading to this body saying that if you just on present trends, they think uh, on one scenario at least, the debt GDP ratio, which is currently around 100%, will reach 300% in a short 50 years time, which is not possible. It won't happen. It can't happen. Um, something will break between now and then. Something will change to make sure that it doesn't happen. But the idea that this country is going to be cutting taxes any anytime soon or embarking on a huge public spending works investment program is for the birds. There's a lot of trouble currently for the UK and a lot of trouble coming down the pipe as well. Okay, Chris, uh, we'll wrap it there. Good to talk. The Office for Fiscal Responsibility, okay? I'll be repeating that in my sleep. You see, Jim, um, you got it wrong again. It's the Office for Budget Responsibility. <laughs> oh, God. Listen. Speak, I, to you next, speak to you next time, Jim. Yeah, okay, Chris. And um, I, I mentioned I want to talk about Irish data, but next podcast, I do want to just recap on what's been happening on the Irish data front because there's some interesting things coming through and trends to watch. So, listen, great to talk. Thanks, Jim. Cheers, mate. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.